Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters for the week ending Friday, October 4. Uh, Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up this week, uh, what you're going to hear is a nice chat that we had with our usual food interluder, Michael Harden, about the history of the restaurant. It was very fascinating. France has a lot to do with it. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Could have spoken a lot longer about it. Yes, this is true. Uh, There's a whole PhD in it, perhaps. Oh, yeah. Mm. Mm. Stay tuned. Uh, also, I I drove a boat and we talked about that. Didn't crash it. Didn't. Well. Or did I? Mm. Tune in to keep listening <laughs> to find out. Uh, and also, we got to chat to Christian White about his new book, The Wife and the Widow. And his greyhound. Yes. Uh, Nat Harris came in as Friday Funny Bugger to walk us through workplace terminology and we got a visit from the great Christos Cholkis about his new work, uh, Anthem, which he co-created and which is uh, touring nationally later this year. What a treat. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. At the start of the year, in my mind, I went... I thought um, I like having like goals, um, like almost fantasy kind of type goals. Oh, yeah. um, and this one was just little things like years ago, I, was like, I wanted to see a whale, you know, things like that. Uh, and this year it was just like, I wanted to go on a boat. Okay. Just wanted to be in a situation where someone goes, do you want to, do you want to go on the boat? I'm like, yeah. Just any boat? Any boat. Didn't have to be like a fancy yacht boat? No, okay. just any, any boat. So some people have New Year's resolutions. You're more into yeah. New Year's random aspirations. Yeah. <laughs> yes, ran, that's a good Random aspirations, yeah. I feel just like you get to, Mark at this. Random aspirations yeah. or boats? <laughs> random aspirations. Yeah. Just, it, it's almost like, like the secret, you know, mm. just visualise, you know. Oh, yeah. Just want, I just want to be on a, at one stage I wanted to be on a boat. That's all it was, and not and you know if it gets to the stage where I have to um, purchase a ticket to go on a boat, then so be it. Yeah. But it's more about um, a random boat experience, okay? Um, because any like I, of course I can just go get on buy a ticket to a ferry or something, you know. I understand, um, but it's that time. Yeah, of, there's less magic in the willing it yeah. to existence. Yes. Mm. Anyway, on the weekend I went on a boat. Awesome. Dreams came true, right? Uh, and because I was, uh, I mentioned this, just that I, w- I went away um, for my friend's fortieth um, in Daniloquin, which that is, wasn't near the water. Yeah, river. Ah, oh. yeah, a couple of rivers down the, that way. The old inland seas. Yeah, uh, we went on the. I think might have been the Edward River, but there's also the Murray River there as well. Uh, but, yeah, we drove to Daniloquin and there's a big caravan park there that is, like, one of the best, apparently one of the best caravan parks in Australia. What we, makes it so good, do you think? Oh, I, for families, like, going there, it was like, oh, I can see why people love this. Oh, yeah. Maybe a table like, tennis table on a flat surface. Yes, that. Uh, it had um, billy carts. And it had like mini golf, and so it was like sick. Yeah, it was like the seventies, where obviously the adults just kind of hang out, and the kids can just go and play for the day. Off you go, go and have a good time. Um, Please don't get hurt. Yeah, no, no, they don't get hurt. They're fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah, Yeah, but that, but that's all the parenting required. Was yeah. please don't get hurt and, then, <laughs> and no follow up. Yeah. See you later. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, so but they uh, also at this caravan park, you can hire a pontoon boat. 
yeah. what's a pontoon boat? Just, just a big square boat and you have a couple of seats on it. Um, yeah, Google it. This, I am. Yeah. You, talk. you can get some nice, yeah, it's just a, oh, a yeah, big, it's like yeah. a big flat boat. Big That's flat, a pontoon. Yeah. Um, and uh, the bonus is no license required. No, really? But you have to have an induction session. And so my friend who hired the boat, it was her birthday, and she goes, I've, I've got to do this induction session, but um, someone else needs to come as well. I'm like, hello, oh, yeah. that's me. Captain Hickey. Captain Hickey, here, here I am, ready to step up. Um, so I went to the induction. It, it was very brief. It was fine. Like we learned what we needed to shut the gates and um, <laughs> reverse go pretty much. There's not, not a lot to know. You've got to put the motor down, press a button, goes down, off we go, right? Um, and so I, I got to drive the boat. <gasps> Dreams, and also here's another thing I learnt on the waterways. It's like the opposite to um, driving on the road. You drive on the opposite on the opposite side, so you have to. She didn't get any lessons about sm- like smashing into the side of the river or well, they other said boats. A- avoid that, obviously. Okay. Um, but I reckon that's if you need to be told not to smash into the side of the river. No, but more how how to avoid doing that. I reckon if you need to ask that, you probably okay. shouldn't be. Thinking right. about driving the boat. Very cool. Do you like when you get a yeah, car? Yeah, I wouldn't. You know, it's just steering. Yeah. Like it's just, there's a steering wheel. It's not hard. You I, just. I once drove a four wheel drive motorcycle and I crashed it into a fence and the guy said, No Why? one's ever done that in the history of us operating this at Gumby Park. How did you. But <laughs> why did you. That's why I asked the question about the pontoon. I just wanted to know if there was more advice. But, but you drive roll. a car, like well, and you don't a, drive I was, into. I was a kid, okay, at the time. Well, I'm an adult. Yeah, and true. Adults are allowed to drive the pontoon. Um, but how's this? Like, I I had a great time. Love love the pontoon, cruising around on the river. We had mimosas. We had a beautiful <gasps> mimosas. brunch. Mimosas. Was there yeah. a blender on board? I mean, what? was there a – did you bring an esky on board? Yes, or? we brought an esky and we bought, you know, things for, for brunch, like a cheese platter and a fruit platter and stuff. And you it don't get amazing. boat sick? It doesn't go bob up and down? No, you're on the river. When a speedboat goes past with someone water skiing, it gets a bit, whoa, up and yeah. down, have a few waves, but – no, it's smooth sailing all the way. Did you give it a nudge and go go a bit fast? Oh, yes, I did, right? So oh. occasionally this some people, people... This is how people crash into the riverbank. Yeah, this is... Uh, I would be putting along and people uh, were sitting up the back of the boat to get a photo mm. and then I did a cheeky little... Whoop, and they... Oh. Whoa. <laughs> oh, Captain everyone, Hickey after old tricks. Yeah, everyone thought it was so hilarious. The old salty like, sea dog. Yeah. Everyone thought it was so funny. They're like, "Oh, you got us! Oh, that was so funny. Good on you! Oh, you got us!" But really, I didn't mean to get them. I just I was concentrating, and there were so many times where, like, I'd you know I'd slow down or, or speed up because we were following another boat. So occasionally, I'd, I'd be getting mimosas in. It gets yeah. confusing. <laughs> but I'd be following the boat in front, and then I'd be getting a bit close. So I'd slow down a little bit. And so, but it, it just happened to be when people would be standing up and they go, whoa, you're getting this again. You got it. I'm like, I'm absolutely, and I went along with it because, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, got yeah. But really, I was not, there was no malicious intent there at all. I was just trying to be safety. And also sit down, sit down on the boat, especially like when we were coming in, 
at the end of it, and I had to go in to, for the docking to, you know, bring the boat back in. All of a sudden, everyone wants to stand up in front of me. Oh. I'm like, no, 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 sit down. Yeah. Sit down. So I was trying to drive in to the pier and to the dock or whatever, and then people were standing up in front of me. And then so I missed it. I'm like, oh, I've mistimed that, and I've got to go, oh. And then the guy that was... From the caravan park, he was yelling out instructions. Oh my god! To me. Yeah, and then um, and Kath looked at me and she goes, "Did you hear what he said?" I went, "No," and then everyone, everyone else thought that I, you know, decided to try and relate to me what the man on the dock had said, which means that there's ten people talk, oh, telling this is me. Gerald and Nikki's like, favorite thing is when ten people tell you something at oh. once. I can't, and then and Kath just and she goes, all right. And meanwhile, I'm doing it. I'm doing donuts on the river, going yeah. swinging back around to try have another shot. And I'm like, all right, I think I've got it, and I've I've managed to figure out the instructions. And I go in again, and I've all said, oh yeah, we'll just stand up again in front of you. Oh I'm my like, god, no! Backseat pontoon drivers, get out, the get worst. Down, yeah. sit down. Otherwise, anyway, I crashed into the dock. It was fine. <laughs> it's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. Well, restaurant lurker and Michael Harden is here for our food interlude. Good to see you, Michael. Good to see you too. Lurker. There's, no one wants to be described as a lurker. Lurker. It's professional and refined lurker. Well, I like that. I haven't been described that as... I've been called a hack, but never a lurker <laughs> Uh, what have you brought in? Um, well, I um, was looking at some statistics the other day, as you do, and uh, I was looking at... They were saying, there was these statistics in Australia that in Australia in 2017 there was 85,000 restaurants, which is about one restaurant per every 285 people. 85,000 in the world? 85,000 in Australia. In Australia, yes. So, and then I was sort of looking at... I thought, how does that, that, that you know... Um, equate to the US, and there's uh, you know in 2016 there was like there was 310 restaurant 310 people per restaurant there, so we've got more than Whoa. the US. Oh but God. then the, but then in the 70s in the US it was one restaurant per 7,500 people. So in a really short space of time it's gone down from 7,500 to 310 per person. So lots of restaurants. And I was thinking, okay, like this is a thing. You know, obviously restaurants have always been a thing, but they're becoming more of a thing. So that led me to going, so how did they start? And, uh, you know, obviously restaurants have been around, well, not restaurants in in the current form, but places to feed people have been around for a long time. Sort of, you know, you, you go to the ancient ruins in Pompeii, for example, and there are these things there um, called therm- thermopolias, which were places to serve hot food. And that was basically, but that was through necessity because there were people there who, um, you know, people didn't have kitchens in their dwellings there. So they were, that was a more ne- necessary thing. And then there, mm. you had things like taverns and inns and those sort of things for travellers. But then the restaurant, of course, came around, the, the modern-style restaurant came, um, started in France in about 1760. And it was a reaction in a way to um, a lack of food in Paris at the moment because this was just pre-revolution when there was a lot, not a lot of food around. And so for the upper classes, it was a really bad look to be seen stuffing your face in an inn or a tavern or a cafe, which is a public place. Um, so it was became fashionable to have a delicate constitution hmm. and so in public. And so they started these places where all they did was serve restorative bouillon. 
Um, so, you know, made from chicken meat or something. So just clear soup in delicate bowls and everybody could go in there and pretend that they had delicate constitutions and they hardly ate anything. And because these places, like, they, they were the restorative broth, so that was in Latin, it's restaurant. So they become restaurants. So these places sort of for, for the upper classes sort of came, became a fashionable thing to do and they became very ornate in the way that they were decorated, particularly with mirrors everywhere. So they had huge mirrors on the wall so everybody could check each other out while they were being delicate and, uh, no. you know, and with oh, the fine so constitution. Weird. The idea that you'd want to see each other... Eat. Yeah, eat. Mm. So it was like it was that sort of thing. But it was sort of at the same time it was very different from the cafe um, part of it at the time because cafes in Paris were big, boisterous places where people debated stuff and, and you know, you were you were away from all of the, the structures of society like the church or the state or whatever who would tell you what to say. You could say whatever you wanted to do. Big open spaces, everybody looking at each other. Anybody could go in there if you could afford to pay. Whereas these new places suddenly were for richer people and they were all... Just about, to look at each other. Yeah, to look at each other. and then But then they were also sort of nooks and crannies and stuff. So rather than big open spaces, so it was became more sort of for clandestine assassinations and stuff. And they were one of the first places in Europe where men and women were allowed to go and be seen mingling together in public. So that was another thing, but it wasn't sort of so much allowed in anything below that. This is a defining feature of a French brasserie, isn't it? Yes. Still. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, so what happened then, it was um, the French Revolution came along and uh, a lot of um, people had their heads chopped off and those big, <laughs> and those big households um, had lots of sh- staff, like lots of cooks, chefs and everything to sort of to cook their, their lavish meals and stuff. And so all of a sudden those people were released back into the, like, into the market. They needed a job. They needed a job. So, you know, it was like there was – so there was these people that had been cooking for these aristocrats, so fancy food. Yeah. Suddenly they sort of moved into the restaurant sphere. And because there was a sort of a guild thing happening in France at the time where you only – certain people were allowed to cook certain things. Like the French love rules. So, yeah. you know, the, it was so, so there were these guild things. So people, the bouillon restaurants came about because they weren't allowed to use certain ingredients as well. So they weren't allowed to use eggs or cheese or anything like that in their restaurants because that was only for a particular type of place. Yeah. And particular people could cook that. And so with the release of this, all the guild rules were loosened as well. So there was this rise in this sort of more fancier kind of food happening in restaurants, which was also, you know, the French Revolution didn't just trigger the decline of, you know, monarchies and the rise of democracies. It also brought in fine dining. <laughs> so um, it was that, that was the way. And so there was, there was, that was the, the way that the restaurants then kind of started to become the, this thing in Paris. And it also, thank God, Gave rise to food writers because it was the, for the first time because people had um, people had always um, written about well not always but sort of in the last you know the couple of hundred years there were people like Diderot um, who sort of looked at and wrote about food and about how it affected society and everything but this for the first time was a sort of like a closed bubble where writers were specifically writing about restaurants and there were, there were critics writing about restaurants for the first time. So in this bubble that the only people that were kind of interested in it were restaurant customers and chefs. So it was this new style of writing 
as well. So it was yeah. sort of like for the first time sort of like becoming very self-referential, which is kind of what the restaurant yeah. industry is. Was there a heyday of food writing or are we in it right now? I think we're probably maybe a little bit past it now, but I think there was heyday probably sort of late last, sort of from the 80s through to sort of last, that was like when it became huge and when like every second person there was cookbooks coming out of, you know, everywhere and everybody had a book and everybody had a blog and everybody, and it was when traditional media was still there and that sort of writing was also... Um, you know, I think the, the the traditional media, the power of the food critic and the restaurant critic was much greater yeah. than it is today because it's been very diluted today. So, but, but the idea of a, a food writer for designated newspaper. Uh, we're talking after the French Revolution. Yes, yeah, yeah. So that became that became a much bigger thing, and sort of it was. An, uh, some chefs were able to become famous through writing, like they would publish books and talk about that sort of stuff. But for most of them, um, it was it was terrible, terrible, terrible working conditions in the kitchens. Um, they had there was more vocational illness in restaurant kitchens than there were in mines. They well, were why because, is that? Because they were working. They were yeah, <laughs> exactly <laughs> the curse. Um, because they were working in these tiny, unventilated spaces. Right. So they were there, were, and it was all wood smoke, of course, or coal. Oh, yeah. So there was all these lung diseases, and there was varicose veins, oh. and you know all these sort of things. A lot of chefs, like it was sort of like the average age of chefs was below forty. Well, I feel wow. like the chefs still don't have a great... No, I know. This is the thing where they're going, oh, and things improved vastly right. after there was a guy called Escoffier who was... Um, he he kind of modernised French cuisine at sort of like at the beginning of the 20th century and one of the things that he did was modernise the kitchen and make it bring in more ventilation and kind of... Um, he also ordered the kitchen into sort of a modern um, place where there was people that made the sauce and people that mm. made the meat and people ah. that made the pastries and that sort of thing and sort of which made it a quicker, faster, better way to do it. But, you know, I was, I was thinking, oh, well, that, isn't that great that he brought in all of that? And, but then you, you think that George Orwell's Down and Out in Paris and London was published in 1933 and the conditions that he was working under, like you read the, the horrors that he saw and, the, you know, the rats and the foot rot and the spitting in the soup and everything that mm. happened back then. It was kind of like, you know, you think, mm, was it all that great? You know? And it's like, but that's kind of like, it's the interesting thing about this whole thing of like looking at the history of restaurants is kind of the way that it, it sort of mirrors what society is doing and sometimes yeah. leads it as and well. And now chefs work 80-hour a week because we're the... Because of capitalism. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but then the, at the moment there's a movement where they're, they're, they're looking to, to get them less and less because all of a sudden mental health and physical health yeah. and everything has, has come into the equation because that's what people are talking about. So there's this new thing now where it's not acceptable for chefs to yell at each other in kitchens and it's much more inclusive and gentle space and they, you know, they're encouraging people to go and talk to people and get out into the open because it is. They still are terrible working situations. Mm. They're, they're small, they're cramped, they're um, loud, they're, there's sharp objects, there's open flames, there's stress. You know, it's yeah. kind of like, you know, just another day at the office, mm. really. Oh, so. well, maybe there's another revolution on the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, you never know. Uh, good on you, Michael. Thanks so much. No worries. You're in triple R. Triple R. 
Author and screenwriter Christian White broke the record for the fastest-selling Australian novel ever with his Victorian Premier's Literary Award-winning debut novel, The Nowhere Child, the rights to which have been sold to territories around the world. He's since had his first feature-length screenplay turned into a film set for release in 2020, and now his highly anticipated new thriller, The Wife and the Widow, has hit the shelves, and he joins us now. Christian, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. (laughs) (laughs) We're happy to have you. Um, Before we get into your new book, can you bring us up to speak? Speed on developments in your life since the uh, success of your debut. It's it's been a weird year and a half. It seems like all of these I had you know half a dozen projects sort of sizzling on and you know on pots on the stove sort of thing, and then all of a sudden in the last year, it's all just happened. So it seems it seems like I'm um, an overnight success, but really it took me about fifteen or twenty years to to get here. So really it's um it doesn't quite count as overnight success. But yeah, it's been it's been crazy. As you mentioned, the film I've got a uh, a TV show I'm working on with Netflix, and now the second book's out. And it's just, um, it's crazy. I, I keep uh, waiting for someone to come in and say, um, it's all been a, sort of a big prank or maybe I'm <laughs> in a coma and this is all a dream. Something, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still waiting for the uh, the penny to drop, really. Mm. Uh, do, you, do you write with these sort of projects in mind? Uh, yeah, I, I, whenever I have an idea for a project, I sort of think, uh, what would it be best for? Is it going to be best for a feature or a TV show? And uh, with the feature I was working on, um, I had the woman who is amazing director, Natalie James. Uh, she's a director and my co-writer on that project. She just came to me with an idea, this crazy idea of, uh, you know, what if uh, what if age dementia was a monster? You know, and that was basically it. And so often it's uh, people coming to you with ideas, but certainly with the books, uh, you just, they pop into your head and then you think, oh, what would it, what, what's that going to be? The, you know, is that going to be a good book or is that mm. going to be called TV show? And uh, the beauty of it being, you know, coming up with a good book idea is, you can just sit and do it with it with film and TV. You have to, uh, you know, get funding and uh, impress fifty people before you get anywhere. So, yeah. <laughs> and if, if people are keeping their eye out, it's called Relic. Relic, yeah, it's a it's a horror film. It's starring, starring Emily Mortimer, who is amazing, and uh, it's super scary. Hmm. Oh, what did you say before that you were really determined in your life to have success? Uh, as a writer and you were going to stick stick it out no matter what. What allowed you to stick it out? How did you kind of have the faith in your writing that it was going to work out? Because it, it doesn't always work it, out. It doesn't. No, I had this very uh, – so I'm 30 30- – Eight now. I'm old enough now where I have to pause to, you know, to think. <laughs> uh, I'm 38 now, and when I was in my early 20s, I said, "Okay, I'm going to be I'm going to be a, a successful published author by the time I'm 25 years old. If not, I'll go and get a backup career. Maybe I'll become a teacher. You know, I'll figure it out then." And then 25 just came and went, and I said, "If I'm not a, a successful published author by the age of 30, then I'm going to go back to school." And I just kept pushing it back like that, and then somewhere around. I, I, I passed that 30 barrier and then I had this sort of very uh, crystal clear image come to my mind, which was uh, I, I was, uh, you know, 97, 98 and I'm dead and my <laughs> grandkids are cleaning out my assisted living unit. You know, and they, they open this little drawer, this little side sliding drawer, and there's this, this big pile of dusty unpublished manuscripts. And as soon as I sort of had that image, I thought... That's not that's not bad, you know. That's that's not a terrible. Obviously, it'd be great to make a living out of it, but if I don't, that's that's okay. So as soon as I, uh, it's weird. As soon as I started uh, just writing for the love of writing and not to be a writer, yeah. that's when everything sort of started to happen. Um, I also think I. 
I'm lucky enough. I'm the I'm the baby of my family. I have three older siblings, and I think that, and they're all you know successful in their field. So I think that my parents sort of thought, you know, we've 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 done an okay job with the first three. Let's just if the fourth one fails, who cares? You know what I mean? It's just like let it let him go, let him do his own thing. Uh, but my my brother recently, after all the you know after my first book was published, my brother said. Um, uh, oh, I'm so, I've got to apologise. I said, why? And, and he said, oh, well, I, I've been saying behind your back for years oh that God. you should go and get a real job. And it, and it was so that so oh, sweet man. of him to apologise, but also to not tell me that up until that point. Up until so, that point. Yeah, yeah, I think it was just a, a just blind like faith. The, the Christmas time, everyone going, how's your, how's your little riding oh, stuff going? Yeah, it was. It how's helped. You, you're still riding, are you? Yeah, and I was like, yeah, I'm still riding. Yeah, I'm still doing, are you writing your little stories? Yeah, yeah. And I was, of course... <laughs> Uh, for years, uh, you know, I've only been writing full time for a, a, about a year now. But up until then, I had a million. I was mm. always working some ridiculous job. You know, I was um, I drove a food cart around a golf course selling sandwiches for a year, which is a real job. Uh, <laughs> and I was there's on the side of a bottle of Coke. There's a free call number that if you want to yell at someone, you call up and, and just yell at them on that number. And I was the person on the other end of that number. Oh. I was um, I was a video editor at an adult film company for a while. So yeah. I just did. Every, so it was always at Christmas. It was, mm. um, yeah, I'm still, I'm still trying to be a writer, but I'm, I'm, I'm editing porn, and it was, yeah, it was tragic. It was tragic. <laughs> the, the, tra- the real tragedy is though. I used to fantasize about. You know, when I become a writer, I'll be able to say at a party, someone will say, what do you do? And I'll be mm-hmm. able to say I'm a writer. And now that I can do that, it's it's Im- really embarrassing. So now I just quickly change the subject. So it's, it, yeah, it's you lose. Why way, is it I think. embarrassing? I don't know. I feel like I'm lying and I feel like they they don't believe me. And then they'll sort of, there's a look that people give you and say, like, oh. okay, now what do you really do? I like, mm. No, I promise. <laughs> well, <laughs> speaking of secrets and double lives, that's a bit of a feature <laughs> of your first novel and this as well. There's a murder in a seaside town. You're, you live in a seaside town. Uh, talk to us about this book and uh, you know where it's I, the genesis of its idea and how you see it. Yeah, so the book, um, the wife and the widow. It's set, as you say, in this uh, little seaside coastal town uh, in the middle of winter. And I think everyone knows those places. I grew up on the Mornington Peninsula. We were chatting about it before, and they there's these places that would boom over summer, and there's there's tourists, and it's. Everything's happening, but then in winter, everyone just sort of drifts away, mm. and it's all these big empty houses, and it's this, this eerie kind of feeling settles uh, on the town. So it's set in a town like that, a fictional town, uh, but set on the Bellarine Peninsula, which is where I'm living now. I'm in uh, Ocean Grove. And it takes the story's told from two perspectives the the wife of a man who is murdered and the wife of a man accused of murder. So you kind of get these two parallel stories, and they, they, you don't get all the information until they finally sort of come together. Uh, and it was really, it was, uh, I think the seed of it, it's one of those things where you kind of don't think about where the idea came from until afterwards. And there's this theme in it, this question that is really, you know, how well can we ever really know the people we love, the people closest to us? And that was a big theme in my first book as well, that I, I, it must be interesting. Are they editing porn? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I think that I can sort of trace it back to, uh, I've been married now for, um, uh, I have no idea, a couple of years maybe. <laughs> Some will be listening and, and she won't know either. But we've, been, uh, but we've been dating for, you know, eight years or something. And anyway, we were... Uh, Everything was going well. We'd moved in together. And all of a sudden, uh, I discovered that she had an interest in amateur taxidermy. And I was sort of like, 
who the hell is this person that I love? You know, she, this is person so close to me, I have no idea who she is. And I think that's where the, the seed of the idea came. It's like, what if, uh, what if she wasn't into amateur taxidermy? What if she was a murderer? Which is, I guess, <laughs> how my brain works. But taxidermy, you, you have taxidermy in the book as well. There's a character who is an amateur taxidermist. And I was going to ask you, where did you get all that knowledge from? Because- it's, yeah, it's all, I just had to describe, to describe that workstation, I just had to walk around and, you know, look at some weird boxes of chemicals oh. and uh blades and we have um you know because she's she's a she's a woman of many many skills but taxidermy is perhaps not one she's really great at <laughs> yet uh so the animals you know we have a rat uh, that's sort of going bald for some reason <laughs> and a bird that you know the 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 aim of aim of taxidermy i think is to make the animal look like it's alive and we've got a bird that is preserved but it just looks like a dead bird it's just real so yeah she's still she's still working on it. but no all of that stuff in the book came directly from reality wow uh, and what's it like working where you are? What's your writing conditions like? Is it as idyllic as it sounds? It's it's beautiful. Uh, you know, at the minute I'm doing a little book tour and stuff, so I'm I'm out of the house, which is good to get me out of the house because I'm a real homebody. But I I moved to Ocean Grove a, about a year and a half ago, and I just felt my uh, shoulders unclench. You know, it's just really relaxing and quiet there, and it's you can just get up and. You know, I just work from home. So I work, you know, 15 feet from my bed. I have my dog with me. And you've got no... We we don't really know anyone on that side, uh, aside from Stacey, the woman who runs the bookshop. Uh, so there's no chance of friends or family popping over. There's no interruptions. You know, it, that has the reverse effect. So if a delivery guy comes, I generally just bail him up and say, oh, how's your day? What are you doing? You know, I become sort of psychotic and they, they back slowly away. I think we're on a, on a, a, a blacklist now for the Jehovah's Witnesses because they would come and I would just sort of come on in. We can talk for hours. I've got plenty of time. Uh, no, it's it's yeah. The fact that I can now do, you know, for so many years I wrote uh, after hours and on the weekends and when I was at work, I'd, I'd have to find little moments throughout the day. So now that I can do all all that stuff that I used to have to find time for, I can do it just during the day is mm. uh, is amazing. So yeah, usually my mornings are really really productive, and then in the afternoon I will generally. It'll start innocent. I'll get on YouTube and, and it'll be for research, but then it'll just, um, you know, YouTube knows you so well now. So mm. it'll just sort of say, uh, you know, a Bigfoot caught on trail cam and I have to, <laughs> and then I'm gone for the afternoon. So. You do have company in the house though, don't you? Can we ask you about your dog? Is that oh, what God, you... Yeah. Yes. yes. I, well, my wife works from home as well, so she's home most of the time. And yeah, my dog... Which, you've got a greyhound. I've got a greyhound. Yeah, we're chatting off air about And they're just the most fabulous, wonderful, incredible dogs. Aren't they? Uh, mine has uh, Izzy her name is she has separation anxiety so mm. so working from home you know you're supposed to train them out of it because i but because i work from home she's just constantly with me so it it just gets worse and worse but re- usually i mean it's surprised i didn't bring in her bring her in here today you know she because i just take her everywhere with me she's just the best oh i've got we're taking ralph down to your uh, to ocean grove today so i hope we run into Izzy I would somewhere. Love, if you run into her yeah <laughs> oh. let, let, let us know just get on the beach yell at izzy, izzy. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and just quickly, what are your goals for this book? I mean, is, are you too almost sheepish to say? No, I want uh, – well, first, I, my first goal was to for it not to expose me as the fraud I truly am inside. Uh, and now that it's been getting good reviews, now I just want it to uh, – I've relaxed with that and I've got a new goal. And now I want it to – it be better than the first book. I just want it to be received better than the first book and then that will uh, – fingers crossed – 
Fingers crossed indeed. The Wife and the Widow is out now through Affirm Press and we've been speaking with author Christian White. Christian, thank you so very much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. Triple Ah. 21 Sorry. years ago. <laughs> <laughs> we were all just talking about Moby and then I silently <laughs> stared at Daniel like, oh, God. Well, it was actually the connection between Moby and Donald Trump. Yeah, it's the... quite detailed. I'll read more about it and, and kill you in. king of the orgies. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 21 years ago, four playwrights and a composer came together to create Who's Afraid of the Working Class, a series of interwoven vignettes that captured the cultural mood in Melbourne and Australia in the 1990s. Now, the same extraordinary team has reunited to take our pulse with Anthem, a new work devised especially for Melbourne International Arts Festival. And to tell us about it, we're joined by its co-creator, the best-selling author and much-loved co-presenter of Superfluity on Triple R, Chris Oscholkis. Welcome back in the studio. Always lovely to be here. Are you sick of me? <laughs> no, <laughs> never. Absolutely never. Uh, congratulations on the show and uh, you're fresh from a preview. Yeah, we had um, the uh, first preview was Tuesday night, but because I'm a committed Triple R person, I was doing Superfluity. So it was second preview last night and it was, it was terrific. You know, you're always nervous when you're, you've created something new, whether it's a book or a, or, or a play. Um, but it's a phenomenal cast. I, I, uh, so I, I was leaping, you know, that, that feeling of being so high up in the air. And that was just because of what was happening on, on stage. You know, because the other great thing about the, the mob uh, I work with, with Patricia and Andrew, Lissy and Irene, is that there's this kind of safety in numbers. You know, when you're by yourself doing a piece... You're in the audience going, oh, my God, everyone's going to look at me with every line that screws up. But, you know, you've got, you've got your mates around you. So it was, it was a lovely night. Hmm. Uh, can you take us back to the original project after its 21st birthday? What's your impression now of Who's Afraid of the Working Class and what it meant to you and everyone involved? Look, it was uh, for, for me personally, it was, a, it was a kind of phenomenal experience because I'd, I'd, I'd written a, a novel called Loaded and it... it I was very fortunate. Uh, uh, a director, Anna Kokinos, made it into a film head on, and Andrew Bovell was uh, one of the co-writers of um, of Head On, and he was in, had been involved for a long time with a company called Melbourne Workers Theatre here in Melbourne, and that was a terrific company. I knew nothing about theatre, but it was the tenth anniversary of the company. Patricia, uh, Irene, uh, Lissy, and Andrew were going to do a work together, and Andrew suggested I come along. And as a new writer, and it was the Kennett years. And for those uh, of you listening who are too young to remember, uh, Kennett was a really—he was like the the first economic rationalist, neoliberal premier um, that we had in in this country. There were, you know, there was always elements of, uh, you know, there were right wing politicians before, but his agenda was to smash the hospitals, to smash the public schools. So we wrote a play. But it was a hard play because it was also saying, what does working class mean now? That was why it was a question. And I remember, I feel really proud of it. So it's a long mm. way of, I just wanted to give context. I, I feel really proud of that play. Um, and I think all of us do because it did ask hard questions. Mm. Um, so th- there was a, a woman I was speaking to last night. And I don't think she was just blowing smoke up my <laughs> but she, was, she said one thing she was responding to Anthem, and I think that's a similarity to, to working class where the connection is. She said, oh, you know, this play didn't feel like it was left-wing cant, and it didn't feel like... Uh, she also said, 
you had these people on stage on the stage that if I had come across on a train or on a street, I would have hated and dismissed immediately. Mm-hmm. And the, the what I hope the play does is go ask you to go a little bit deeper and to think where do, where does some of the ugliness come from? Mm-hmm. What do you think? I mean, in exploring this, what do you think has changed when you look around us and you've explored? you know, the early 90s and people then and people now, what is the thing that you found either linked it or that has changed dramatically? Uh, look, I think there's, um, there's a line that Irene brought to the play in one of the characters. I mean, it's one of the beautiful things about collaboration. It's a character that I think she and I created together, really, because um, I, I created this uh, uh, Greek woman on the train and Irene took it and did something. With it. And there's a line where she says, you know... Um, uh, the the enemy was clearer back then, <laughs> and I think that's a real change. Like kind of everything feels uh, really difficult. To kind of it's a, it's a bit like that that cliche of the elephant in the room in mm. terms of where do you go po- politically? There's so many so many things happening, and there's the notion of class too doesn't mean what it 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 once did. I think too just as a, a practitioner, and it doesn't matter if you're a playwright or a, or a writer or a comedian or, or, or you know. I think there's a different sense of – I think there's a fear and that's how we began writing this play, going, what are we scared of? Mm. And, you know, there's there's climate change. What aren't we scared of? <laughs> yeah, there's inequality. There's um, uh, uh, all the terrorism, you, you, you know, you, um, surveillance, um, all those things. But one thing we also uh, were scared of was the idea of – it feels dangerous to speak – and it feels dangerous to ask questions a bit at the moment because yeah. I think what happens on, particularly with social media, is you get shouted down um, almost immediately. Mm. And uh, and there are there are I can understand why people get angry and are doing the shouting, but sometimes it really stops uh, conversation and sometimes it really stops. Uh, uh, talking about ideas, and that's what art should do, right? That, mm, that was yeah. one of the things that it, it should do. So. You kind of, we went, okay, if we're scared of this, let's not be scared and try and do something that is thoughtful. You know, we don't want to be stupid and we don't want to be irresponsible, but let's do something that is thoughtful but challenges ourselves mm. as well. You know, there's that cliche mm. too of like preaching to the converted. Mm. And, you, you know, I actually, maybe th- there are limits to who's going to come to a, a place like the Playhouse, but I don't want to preach to those p- to people like us, yeah. I actually want to challenge the converted. <laughs> if I, you know, and I think Anth- I'm hoping that Anthem does that. When the writing process, what was that like? Was it, you know, because it's an incredible bunch of writers that you'll you'll just get to hang out in a room together, or was it a separate thing? And then you come together. Oh, the, the first part is that we, we had two weeks, and I've got to uh, uh, thank Daniel Clark, who used to work at the Art Centre in Melbourne, yeah. and he was a he 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 made it possible by bringing us together. I mean, we are friends, so we see each other all the time. Yeah. We've done other work together, but he's so the first process was. Um, a development, all of us in the room, and part of that was just going ba 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 ba, just gas bagging the way mm. you do. Also, kind of actually going on trains, and a lot of the, the play really came together when we decided to set it on public transport. Because mm. the thing about public transport is that's where actually be people bump up into uh, uh, against each other, right? It doesn't mm. matter what class you're right, it doesn't matter what gender, it doesn't matter what ethnicity, um, what, what sexuality, etc., etc., etc. You're all there on the train carriage. So it's a really a live 
place to set a play that is about identity and a play that is about what does it mean to be Aussie now. And then we all go away and write our individual scenes and then we come together and because we know each other so well, we trust each other. So if, if those four are saying to me, I don't think this works, Cholkas, I'm going mm. to take that um, seriously. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, you've got the support if you go, can I give it another try? Can I come yeah, back in yeah. a month or can I come back in three days or can I come back in 30 minutes? Yeah. Trains Depending. have featured a fair bit in your work. Is there, is there a uh, – do you have a preferred train line? Uh, a preferred train line? That's <laughs> a good question. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm on the uh, South Morang, all right? Uh, um, or oh, the Mernda, sorry. It keeps changing. <laughs> yeah. uh, but from a uh, from a little boy, there's this moment for uh, that that line um, crosses over Mary Creek, and because um, I grew up, the, the train station nearest to when when I was a, a little kid was North Richmond Station, and we had cousins who lived in Northcote in Beaconsfield Parade. So I'm trying to orientate mm. people mm. who are listening. And there's a bit where you cross over Mary Creek and as a little boy I would just sit with my face plastered to the window looking down at the creek. I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever yeah. seen. So wow. I guess that's still that moment. But I think a preferred uh, train line is – I'm going to sound like a wanker, but the no. Saint, um, <laughs> I, I reckon the, um, the northern line that goes to Saint-Denis in Paris. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, yeah, you were right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with it, so the, the the production is called Anthem, and uh, you know, in terms of identity and the the role that anthems play, does the production explore the role of the anthem? And you know, yeah. may, maybe maybe an anthem is possibly a bit of a middle class indulgence that. Uh, you know, to get yourself twisted into knots over. And I was reading a piece of yours that it alluded to that sort of thinking. Yeah, well, I don't know if it's a... It's, it's, I mean, I think the, I was just discovered this the, the other day, actually, that the etymology of, the, of anthem was in, um, in, in Christian history, that it was originally a sacred song that, you know, is part of the, a unity of the church. And maybe that's... That aspect of the anthem, we, you know, it was like, can we have an anthem? This anthem that we have at the moment to someone like me doesn't feel like it speaks to the country we are, right? Mm. Um, because of it doesn't acknowledge um, the long Indigenous history mm. of this country. The flag doesn't feel like mine because I look at that Union Jack and I go, what's it got to do with who we are? Mm. Um, at the same time, but the whole the notion is there? Can there be a um, a, a lyric? That can unify us all. Maybe that what you hope is for a moment, just a moment in time that you can feel. Uh, what's the best way of explaining? I was saying it the other day, I remember being in London years ago and it was around the time Oasis were big and I was. it was after a footy game, like a, a soccer game there, and the street I was in was just full of people singing Wonderwall. And whatever you think of the, think of the song, it was like, oh, that's an anthem. And, mm. and that, there's a football anthem in the play, right? And that's an anthem as well that connects us. But every, it connects the, what, us when we sing it when we win. Yes. So there's always, there's always the losing side. Mm. And maybe that's just inevitable in an, in an anthem. But I just wish we had a better one because I don't think 
And the, the thing about writing that article and thinking about Anthem with this play too is we did change. We used to have God Save the Bloody Queen. Mm. When you're yeah. at school. Yeah. And you I, can yeah. change. Yeah, yeah. That we, we did change it, you know, that it doesn't have to... Because, you know, you, people talk about um, a, a national day, like a, a, a Australia Day slash Invasion Day, mm. that it can't change, that it's somehow um, sacrilegious. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, no, things can change. And I think our... Uh, I think maturity is going sometimes, actually, it doesn't work anymore. Mm. Let's just go somewhere else. Yeah. Well, Anthem is on now uh, until this Sunday at Playhouse Arts Centre as part of Melbourne International Arts Festival. You can go to festival.melbourne for details and the full program. And you can also listen to Christos on Superfluity, Tuesdays at <laughs> 8 till 10. Uh, Christos, thank you so much and congratulations. It's always a pleasure. I hope it was, uh, uh, I sounded okay because like, it was a good party afterwards. <laughs> I just went, I do. It Don't was, put yourself in it, mate. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a great cast and a, and a great team. So, yes, uh, thank you for having me. Thanks, Christos. Triple R. It is indeed Friday. It's time to welcome back into the studio our Friday fleeting bug Nat Harris. Hi, Nat. Hi, Nat. Hi, Nat. Hi, guys. How are we? I'm good. I'm well. You guys have been giving away prizes all morning. Yes, and we're going to give more later. Oh, I thought you were going to say, and we're going to give you one. (laughs) Sorry. Really? (laughs) Listening to them, I find that, like, that would be amazing, obviously, to be called out, but quite stressful. Yes. Like, to do you feel that at all? Oh, to receive the and how do you respond to it? Yeah. Okay, let's test you out. Okay. Oh God. Bring, oh, bring. I actually feel nervous. Bring, bring. Hello, Natalie speaking. Oh, hello, Natalie. It's Geraldine Hickey calling from the Breakfasts. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> See, did you? Am yeah. I giving excitement? Yeah, yeah. Hello. Hello. Uh, do you know why we might be calling you at this time? I, I know. Uh, congratulations, you are the winner. Oh, what? Of, oh, my God. Of a 2019 uh, Richmond Tigers premiership poster. <laughs> oh, my Oh my God. Are you kidding? Signed by Breakfast to Sarah Smith. Oh, <laughs> what? This is incredible. It came free in the paper. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is the best day of my life. See? Nailed it. Nailed it. That was good. But that's a that thing. was very good. Oh, thank you, guys. Uh, that's something that I, I think I would give 110, yeah, mm. regardless. If you yeah. gave me that, that's exactly what I would oh, do. Oh, good. I can't. I remember I used to find it really stressful. And obviously, this is a good problem to have. But when I was younger, on Christmas, opening presents that were supposedly from Santa. Yes. Because I knew. Uh, yeah, from Santa. From Santa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was just like, oh, um, I just. Felt- and you knew Santa would be watching. And yeah, you wanted exactly. Santa to know. Exactly. You wanted to give him the felt- right response for Santa. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I really felt the pressure for Santa. Anyway, <laughs> good chat, guys. <laughs> um, so today, chatting about something I, I would like to think that we um, have all done at least once or twice mm-hmm. is, you know, and I think it's something you do when you're younger. Maybe, or maybe you still do it. I don't know. 
But, you know, when you just miss the opportunity to ask a question or admit something that, oh, you know, yeah. you Every haven't day, seen. Mate. Okay, yeah. yeah, and you just nod along. This is why I don't sleep at night. <laughs> yeah, it does. It keeps you awake for years. Like, or particularly I'm talking about, like, words. You're not really sure what they mean. Yeah. Yeah. And then you nod along and then you're like, I should really check that out. Mm. I mean, really, you could just Google it, but. You know, like I remember first year uni, I did a subject, visual culture, okay? I chose it because we got to watch a movie every Monday morning. But I remember, like, time went on and I was like, oh, it's too late to ask what avant-garde means. <laughs> Do you know oh, yeah. what I mean? So yes. that, that kind of thing. Um, and I'm experiencing that a little bit at the moment uh, because I've started working casually in an office. Oh. Uh, watch out. Hello. Um and I... Are you thinking, I should have asked what, what an that Excel means. spreadsheet Yeah, was. yeah, yeah. Excel. Excel's the devil. I feel oh, it like is. It's two kinds of people, aren't they? People who love Excel. Mm. And I just think it's it's named ironically. I mean, there's nothing that Excel's about. No, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Excel. Oh. in Excel. Now we're in an office environment. Yeah. yeah. Oh, watch out. Daniel transported us there. Thank you. See at the water cooler. See, there's yes. nothing that excels about it. You're working hard or hard work? Uh, yeah, water cooler. Hello. TGIF. Yeah. We know. We've been in an office. Every one of us in here. Okay. Well, this is the thing. So there's like a few words that I definitely, I was like, it doesn't really matter whether I know what they mean or not. But I was like, hmm, I do not know what they mean at all. Now, let me ask. Have you guys spent much time? Well, clearly, you've spent a lot of time in the office with mm-hmm. all this Excel yes. water cooler. No, but quite genuinely. So there's three words that I didn't know what they mean. Um, I left it too long and I kind of formed my own meaning in my head. Okay. But I could reverse engineer this questionnaire right. or this quiz of being like, because I feel like they're quite obvious. So are you quite privy to the office speak, Daniel? Yeah, I, I think I can do it. Yeah, okay. All right. I, so- I'm not overly, I'm overly confident in... If you were to say what these words were, I reckon I might not know. You might not know. Yeah. Ah, somewhere in between. Okay, so I'll mm. give you the three words and then we can go from there. Okay. So I okay. can either tell you what I thought they meant okay. Or, okay. or you can try guess what yep, I thought yep. they meant. If you yep. know what they are, tell me and then we'll, we'll reverse yep. the game. Yeah. Um, so the three words are um, RDO. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. RDO. Secondment. No. Okay. And, yeah. And ooh. Ooh. Oh. Ooh. How do you spell O? Tri- like double, uh, triple O. Oh, wow. Not oh. O. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, God, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, my God, that hurt my brain. Yeah. <laughs> I'm dehydrated. <laughs> you need to spend more time in water cooler. Yeah, exactly. Do you know what all of them are, Daniel? Uh, well, yeah. I, th- I, know, yes. I, I don't know the last one. I know the first two. I know the first one. Okay, you know, the f- what's the first one? Uh R- r- day off, registered, r- rostered day off. Yes, well RDO. done. Yes. Very day good. Off. Okay, so what do you think I thought the rostered day off meant? An RDO was a uh, ride, drive, or something else. Yes, very close. Oh, really? That's close to what you thought it was? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> no, I just had no idea. I thought maybe it was an STD. <laughs> You know, I thought maybe because I've heard this for years before being in the office. But whenever people are having a day off at yeah. an RDO, like, yeah, because oh, no. really going around the workplace, isn't it? Yeah, I was like exactly. And geez, quick recovery, only one day. I know. I thought, oh god, something's going on here. Whenever you know, friends would have RDOs, they would have always been out the night before. You know. Yeah. 
be sleeping all day on their RDO, <laughs> cooped up inside, you know. Even though the sun would be shining, I'd be like, oh, no work. And they're like, no, I've got an RDO. I'm like, oh, is anyway. that like a UTI, is it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could be. Okay, so right. the second one, secondment. Second- I think I know. Yeah, go. Was it where you go away, you have... You're off from work for a, for a period of time. No. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> what? Why do I think that's what it was? Oh, it's kind of hard. What's right? a sabbatical? Oh, maybe. That's yeah. What, I'm what is a sabbatical? I think is that what you is that what it is where you go off and have a bit of time off? A no, sabbatical? it's when you. By the way, today's an RDO. I think. Is what do you mean? Well, tradies get RDOs, and it's sort of industry wide. Really? Oh, oh really? my God. Happy RDO, everyone. Happy RDO day. <laughs> Live it Hope up. You get keep it soon. safe. Oh, yeah, please keep it safe. Enjoy your RDO responsibly. Uh, but, uh, oh, were you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, okay, really I don't know. I thought the comment was you went away no. for a while. Yeah, so, kind of right. Work puts you in another workplace. Ah. Yeah. So you get some time off from a workplace to work somewhere else. Yeah. And you get put on secondment. Yeah. I thought that. Oh, oh my God, this whole time I've thought it meant you went and you didn't have to work somewhere else. So when someone said they were going on secondment, I was like, that's awesome. Yeah, I well, I had no idea what it was. I was same as you. When people are like, "Oh, Libby and Gary are on secondment," I'm like, "Oh, they're on." I hope island. they're all right. I don't know if it's just me, but they're being on an RDO. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, everyone's on RDO. They're on leave or on secondment, is what I've learned. But I feel like secondment's got such like a medicinal feel to it. Yeah. Don't you think? Mm. Sounds like a procedure. I feel like they're being. Seconded. Exactly. Yeah. What mm. does it sound like? Secondment. I don't know. Mm. I feel like it's like they've been embalmed or something. Oh, maybe it is a bit embalmed. I feel like it sounds like punishment. Like maybe yeah. you'd, you'd be sent there in prison. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my condolences yeah. to Libby and Gary. I, I hope wishing They're them on, a speedy recovery. Yeah, on an, a, on an island. They're on a, like a survivor yeah. island. Yeah. Well, I think the, the, for me it's the pronunciation is unusual because it's spelt secondment. Yeah. Good. So it's it, to me it's like if you saw it and you were just learning English, yeah. you, it would look like, you Absolutely. know. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I second meant the motion. Yeah. I second oh, yeah. meant, yeah. What's with that? Mm. Huh. It's a weird word. Because it's because we don't say, you know, there are 60 seconds to a minute. No, you're right. No, we've cracked this wide open. Thank you. <laughs> and now lastly, ooh, so you, you're not familiar with this one, Daniel. No, oh, no, 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 no. I know this one. Uh, I know it. Do you? I know it. What is it? Out of office. Yes. Oh, yes. Good one. Oh. Well done. I'm so you know, happy I'm with so love it. All these people are going to be driving to work I know. going, yeah, well done. Yeah, you yeah. Yeah. losers. Yeah. Get a you real job. Is. Totally. <laughs> I would like to revoke my subscription <laughs> for these pricks. Yeah. Have we? So do people actually say ooh? Yes. People no. don't, don't forget to update your ooh. No one's obviously oh, ever said that to me because God. I'm a casual. <laughs> They're like, get out. <laughs> Update your ooh. Update your ooh. Oh. Yeah, try use it in a sentence today. I will. <laughs> Have you know. updated your ooh? ooh? Is that oh ooh? Yeah, so office life, guys. Ooh. Are you lo- clearly loving it? Oh, I'm loving it. <laughs> <laughs> Listening. Uh, uh, yeah, I know. Updating my every moment. <laughs> oh, Nat Harris, thank you very much. No worries. Triple R. 
You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.